This podcast has four distinct sections. The first is an overview on how and why we have gotten to the lessons of Fifth Columns and the Oppressed and also Hacking the Mind. The second part is a general overview of Fifth Columns that complements our last podcast on partisans and saboteurs. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to that podcast yet, please do so before this podcast. The third part is Fifth Columns in the Confederacy during the U.S. Civil War. The analogies, I believe, are insanely relevant to today. The fourth part is very helpful for Lesson 10 and a part of Lesson 10's exercise, but will be investigated even more thoroughly in our penultimate lesson on hacking the mind. So first, let's take a look to where we have been thus far in this course. This will be vital to our Lesson 10 exercise and also vital to our discussions for Lesson 11. We started our course with theory and mindset, moving to ways and means, and now we're still in the throes of actors, actions, and tradecraft. In unrestricted political warfare, we learned about the importance of creative ways and means that it takes to recognize, analyze, counter, collapse, and execute subversive warfare. In active measure subversion, we learned about offensive measures, amid which we took a deeper look at exacerbating schisms that already exist through intermediaries and done subtly. We look specifically to an example of global and strategic subversion with many lines of effort and many layers of deception and stovepiping between labor unions, the White House, the Hill, the Vatican, priests, and many others in order to subvert Soviet political and ideological influence and attempted control in Poland for the better part of a decade. These lessons were to help us with a mindset, a framework through which to better understand and conduct subversive warfare. Then we discuss ways and means, not in theory, but through meta case studies, subterfuge as a continuing action of subversive warfare or the other side of the subversion coin. The assumption is that subtlety and secrecy are never enough. We need layer deception plans, subterfuge stories, especially those that allow an adversary to conduct self-deception by playing into their biases, worldviews, and hopes. Conspiracy theories who broke down societal schisms at the extreme and how subversion can be conducted to deceive, divert, or distract societies, and furthermore, a more specific way on how to divide and sometimes even create ideological and political divisions. Film. We studied the ways and means to attempt to subvert audiences with some subtlety given enough time and exposure, an idea that certainly is debatable. We can apply, I think, lessons from even film to our case study in Lesson 10, and that is in the way of print journalism, media use in photographs, of photographs, and most importantly, literature written before and during the U.S. Civil War. More on that in seminar. Institutional sabotage. We discuss outright subversion or a collapse from within an entire society, another entity. But we additionally, and we spent more time on looking at methods and ways and tools to slow or to lower morale and make a particular organization or office or branch become less effective, less efficient 
through simple means over enough time, below the level of outright treason. Most often, this is about allowing, enabling, or even so slightly being aware of, and then maybe subtly leveraging institutional sabotage that already is occurring. Then last week, partisans and saboteurs, from the readings and the podcast, we looked at several levels and layers of subversion warfare From mild resistance to outright guerrilla warfare, we will come back to this podcast. We will come back to those readings in Lessons 10 and 11. We look to how we can see subversion in all the shades of gray between a theoretical peace and a theoretical total war. But even in total war, or at least in kinetic battle, subversion is occurring concurrently, especially on the idea of using other missions like counterterrorism, countering violent extremism, or stabilization in order to create relationships from which to subvert, for example, Chinese and Russian malign influence, etc. It is when we move to kinetic total war and out of necessity and oftentimes desperation that we often turn to subversive warfare to survive and maybe eventually even to be victorious. For 70,000 years, the target of subversive warfare has remained the same. The target comprises the limbic system and the subconscious. For 70,000 years, the targeted effects have remained the same. Either behavior changed or behavior unchanged. Through global disruptive technology from papyrus to the printing press to the radio, to an explosion of information and communications innovations that are accelerating even right now as I record this podcast, subversive warfare does, of course, see changes, innovations. Some scholars argue that warfare's character has changed. Some even argue that the very nature of war has changed. Still others argue that the changes are only on the periphery. Whatever your perspective, whatever your point of view, whatever your analysis— We have to understand that because the targets and effects of subversive warfare remain unchanged, we can indeed perhaps learn from history and find themes and lessons and analogies that can provide a starting point to analyze subversive warfare today. Some say history doesn't repeat. Some say history doesn't even rhyme. My experience, at least, is that historical case studies may still offer some lessons nevertheless especially as Ukrainian subversive subversive warfare and resistance goes, quote-unquote, Stone Age, which we may see soon. Uh, In some cases, at least, this Civil War case study may be especially important. Now, I want to move to defining and thinking about fifth columns. According to definitions from Oxford Languages, The fifth column is a group within a country at war who are sympathetic to or working for its enemies. According to Merriam-Webster, it's a group of secret sympathizers or supporters of an enemy that engage in espionage or sabotage within defense lines or national borders. Also from Merriam-Webster, a group within a country at war who are sympathetic to or working for its enemies. According to the Oxford Essential Dictionary of the U.S. Military, a fifth column is a clandestine group or faction of subversive agents who attempt to undermine a nation's solidarity by any means at their disposal. The term is conventionally credited to Emilio Mola Vidal, 
a nationalist general during the Spanish Civil War, that's between 36 and 39, last century. As four of his army columns moved on Madrid, the general referred to his militant supporters within the capital as his fifth column, intent on undermining the loyalist government from within. Now I want to turn in this podcast to the Civil War. This sounds, again, insanely irrelevant to uh, today, to apply to today's strategies and understanding behavior today. This was generations ago, but I believe that the lessons apply to great power competition and to the situation in Ukraine to a degree that is uncanny. And let me explain. Now, deadly revolts and Hollywood-ready resistance, that is BBC and CNN's once rosy misperception of the doomed and failed Arab winter in Libya and Egypt, for example, they've gained media attention. We've seen this again in the last couple weeks in the Ukraine. What is less covered, less recognized, and less understood are some of the subtle ways and means of subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage. Most trained historians and social scientists ignore subtle subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage, or relegate these phenomena to a footnote. So the questions I want us to ask ourselves when I do this introduction to this case study of the Civil War, much more information, will be available to you in seminar. I want us to ask ourselves, what keeps current historians from acknowledging and more fully understanding the roles, no matter how subtle, no matter how minor, of subversion within the Confederate borders during the U.S. Civil War and also in recent history in great power competition? The second question I want us to ask ourselves, what lessons from the U.S. Civil War can we apply to prepare ourselves today to recognize, analyze, and when appropriate, help enable subversion in great power competition? One of the reasons, as I'll talk about, that we focused on the U.S. Civil War is this is a war that very much neared what many would consider total warfare. Third question I want us to ask ourselves are what lessons from the U.S. Civil War can we apply to prepare ourselves to recognize and or help enable subversion across enemy lines in a future or current kinetic conflict that again may near something called total war. Ironically and paradoxically, it was during the all-out war period in the closing years of the U.S. Civil War that forced the Union to conduct subversive warfare. Most historians maintain that the Union was largely uninterested in subversion within the Confederacy until the fall of 1863 and after the large, the final large conventional battle of Gettysburg. Before this, except for radical Republicans in the North, the Union was largely uninterested in total emancipation, even if some political and social leader, leaders sought to end the crime against humanity that was slavery. Instead, they held on to the promise of restoring the Union first and foremost, and also in some cases, avoiding free blacks overwhelming the north but from the 19 excuse me but from the 1863 battle of gettysburg to lee's surrender the civil war began to near a so-called total war attacks against the capitals confederate general early's raid into dc was repelled in the summer of 1864 
The Kilpatrick raid into Richmond was repelled also in 1864, and then Confederate leaders fled Richmond in the spring of 1865, uh, trying to burn the city down, certainly all documents. Also, there was continuous trench and tunnel and siege and attrition and scorched earth warfare. The North was winning a stalemate, if you will, and extended battles with it with many times more casualties and many times more replacement than the South had. There was a further tightening by the Navy blockade and total economic and commercial warfare against the South. Sabotage, such as by the famed Jesse Scouts of the North and the Mosby ra- uh, Rangers of the Confederacy. And then the Union's offensive through major towns and cities in the Deep South. As, as Jeff Shera says, and I quote, until Gettysburg, the war was fought from the old traditions. The Napoleonic method, the mass frontal assault against fortified positions. After Gettysburg, the changes become a matter of survival. Or understand the use of shovels becomes as important as the use of muskets. The new methods, trench warfare, no quick and decisive fight to end all fights. There is a new reality in which honor and glory are becoming hollow words. The great causes are slowly pushed aside and men now fight with the grim determination to take this fight to the end. Secessionists, and this is me now again, secessionist agents attempted to influence anti-Lincoln, anti-emancipation movements in northern states to include New York to attempt to exacerbate existing societal and political divisions. Union detectives and intelligence services accelerated arrests of northern journalists and others for questionings Lincoln's war policies. It is in this last two years of war that the Union surged its ranks in industry, even more so with former slaves, with freed slaves and new immigrants, and sought out victory by almost any means. This means all-out war, subversion, sabotage. Now let's look to subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage in the Confederacy. First, on the plantations. From the book, Did Black Rebellion Win the Civil War? And I quote, United States history textbooks have long portrayed the Civil War as a clash between two armies. Now a quote from Stephen Hahn. What seems... What seemed obvious to slaveholders and Confederate officials at the time has been widely restricted or rejected by historians. However, according to Hahn, and I go on, the case for slave rebellion does not have to be dug up, teased out, or deconstructed. It is neither hidden, archivally silenced, nor subtly discursive. Quite simply, it stares us in the face, and almost the case... Uh, And although the case is by no means indisputable, the documentation that has been compiled over the years lends to a great deal of support. If that evidence does not lead us right up to its embrace. Some slave rebellions, including massive ones, began as acts of marinage or as efforts to bring about reform within the system of slavery. Others erupted with explosive violence. Going back to did black rebellion win the Civil War, historians are just now beginning to give credence to W.E.B. Du Bois' assertion that enslaved workers coordinated a general strike 
which helped end the Civil War. It may not surprise us to learn that slaveholders and their political representatives would consider their slaves flight to and then alliance with the Union as rebellious and insurrectionary, as indicative of actual rebellion. According to Hannigan, much lesser activities on the part of slaves provoked their masters to a state of alarm before the war. And once hostilities commenced, the correspondence and diaries of slaveholding Southerners and Confederacy and Confederates described the doings of slaves crackled with language of rebellion and revolt. They spoke of disturbances, contagions, symptoms of revolt, terrible stirs, stampedes, mutinies, intentions to spring, strikes, turnouts, and states of insurrection. Again, from Han, many of those who remained at home contested the authority of their owners in ways that were central to the meaning of enslavement, demanding pay, rejecting close supervision, making decisions about life and labor themselves, coming and going as they pleased. In some cases, they took direct action against their masters by sacking their estates and destroying their properties. Slaves themselves acted in ways that neither side had adequately anticipated. Anticipated The slaves disrupted workings of plantations and farms on the Confederate home front. Now a little bit on from the subversive to the kinetic, again from Han. They fled from their plantations and farms in great numbers against the express commands of their owners and often in the face of double-barreled shotguns or threats of reprisal against family and friends. They served as scouts and guides and spies for invading Union armies, and they eventually took up arms in the many thousands against the Confederacy. Now, this is me. Amongst many others, this was exemplified by the already seasoned liberator, guerrilla fighter, commander, and strategic planner, scout, reconnaissance expert, intelligence operative and scout, saboteur, and medic Harriet Tubman. Now, a little bit more about specific partisan wars or statelets uh, against the Confederacy. The Confederacy contended with breakaway statelets, guerrillas, pro-Union partisans, and anti-Confederacy subversives and saboteurs. So-called civil war within the civil war within the Confederacy. The following are simply what I would consider representative excerpts from a super study that was conducted and analyzed by History.com. Scott County, Tennessee, and I quote, were mostly small farmers and mountain people who viewed the affluent slave-owning planters in the West with contempt. 95% of Scott's citizens voted against the measure to secede. In 1861, Scott's County Court approved a resolution to separate from the rest of Tennessee and form, and I quote, the free and independent state of Scott. Scott County would remain an unofficial sovereign entity for 125 years until 1986. Winston County, Alabama. It was one of the strongest pockets of pro-union activity in the Deep South. Most of Winston's subsistence farmers didn't own slaves, and they saw Alabama's secession as an illegal act. While they never formally seceded, many of the county's young men hid in the hills and forests to avoid conscription by the Confederacy Army, and others fled north and fought for the Union. 
Jones County, Mississippi, for those movie, those uh, movie lovers out there from that uh, Matthew McConaughey movie from a few years ago. The story of Jones County, Mississippi's unionist activities, has been clouded by myth and legend, but most historians agree that this small, wooded backwater was the site of some particularly violent resistance to the Confederacy, organized into a unionist guerrilla outfit called the Knight Company and took to harassing nearby Confederate units. Then we have Searcy County, Arkansas. Isolated Searcy County was one of the few districts whose delegate originally voted against secession, later changed in the interest of unanimity. And the mountain community was teeming with Union sentiment. Men fled north or hid out in the Ozark to avoid conscription by the Confederacy. Still others switched side and joined up with the Union, and the region eventually supplied as many as six companies worth of of troops for the U.S. war effort. Texas Hill County. In this region of southern uh, south-central Texas, German immigrants typically considered slavery immoral, and many refused to take an oath of loyalty to Confederacy or join its army. The Hill County's resistance put a strain on its relationship with its Confederate neighbors, leading eventually to acts of brutal violence on both sides. North Carolinian subversives. Many resented the planter class and felt they were fighting a war so that the rich men could keep their enslaved property only. There was incidences of resistance and desertion were highest in the western Piedmont area, known as the Quaker Belt, and in the mountains. As the war dragged on, some of these men formed armed bands. Again, these are subversives and guerrillas. And so now I want to talk about the themes on our penultimate lesson. In our last taught lesson entitled Hacking the Mind. Specifically, we will focus on psychological subversion. If there is time and interest by students, we most certainly will dig further into hacking the subconscious and limbic system, new theories and case studies from what you've seen before, and what will allow us to come full circle to lesson one of SSS and also for the first lesson of the concentration. Don't worry, spring students, you will not miss a thing. So let's look at first at existential subversion and terror within the Confederacy. And the following is my own writing. Though the Union's initial and enduring war aim was to restore the Union, even allowing border states to practice slavery, most historians argue the Confederacy was originally founded primarily to protect slavery. Not all historians claim this. For Southern landowners, and political leaders, slavery and the, the, the denial of rights of black people were a way of life, a necessity of their contemporary li- livelihood and perceived survival, and a sacred value and duty. Historians confer that a few, some, many, or most Confederate landowners, the otherwise wealthy politicians, extremists, that is pro-slavery extremists, ideologues, and mainstream civil leaders not only feared bloody retribution at the hands of formerly enslaved people, but also the complete subversion of their sacred values, foundational narratives, worldview, very identity, meaning, and purpose. This is not a unanimous view by any means, but one perspective on the study of some 
and maybe perhaps even most parts of the white populations of the Confederacy. Stephanie McCurry offers the following. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, offered a political manifesto. Our government is founded upon and is laid upon, its cornerstone rests upon, the great truth that the black person is not equal to the white man, that slavery is natural. It's God's natural condition. This, our government, is the first in the history of the world based on this great truth. The, de- the decision, and this is, I continue with McCurry, the decision of slaveholding states to secede, to separate from the United States, was a culmination of a 30-year effort to protect the rights the right to hold property in persons, the institution of slavery. Nascent Confederates were candid about their motives. Positions, a position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, that is the nascent Confederate position. The North, it said, was advocating black equality socially and politically. It bound the Confederate Congress and territorial governments to recognize and protect And I quote, the institution of black slavery, no law denying or impairing the right of property in black slaves shall be passed. Now I want to move to psychological subversion and terror, specifically General William Tecumseh Sherman, who passed in 1891. And he said, my aim then was to whip the rebels, to humble their pride, to follow them to their inmost recesses and make them fear and dread us. Fear, he believed, was the beginning of wisdom. What he meant was uh, that wisdom was unifying the nation. His famous march to the sea, this is from Atlanta to Savannah, the initial march to the sea. This happened between uh, the middle of November and towards the end of December in 1864. Sherman targeted industry, infrastructure, private property, destroyed about 300 miles of railroad as well as bridges, in many miles of telegraph lines. They seized 5,000 horses, thousands of mules, uh, over 10,000 head of cattle, and 9.0 million pounds of corn. This is about $1.5 billion of property damage in today's currency. Now, this does not suggest the total war that is imagined in American mythology and lore. In a New York Times book review of a book by James McDonough, it is said... This most famous of his actions, that is his uh, march to the sea, is probably his least understood or perhaps most misrepresented. He did not conduct total war, nor did he use violence indiscriminately. To the contrary, his march across Georgia and then into South Carolina was a targeted use of violence against wealthy Confederate diehards in the rural South who had been largely untouched by the war. It was to these plantation owners that Sherman intended to bring the hard hand of war, and he did so with audacity and courage. The surprise now is that this soldier, portrayed to to generations of children as the father of the American style of scorched earth warfare, was actually a politically shrewd general, probably more so than 99% of our top officers today. He understood, for example, that Union soldiers randomly stealing from the former uh, from farmers of Kentucky would turn, quote unquote, the people against us. Now, there were scorched earth operations 
going on in the Civil War. This author argues that in the case of General Sherman, it was about psychological war. It was about people being terrified that either the slaves would eventually rise up, which many of them did as Sherman marched along, or that the war could be brought to their backyard. And finally, uh, and this has more to do with Lesson 11, state rights, or the state rights narrative subverting itself. With little success, but with apparent ideological fear, some community and state leaders, and that is a small minority of local legislators and two governors, rhetorically challenged the Confederate government for becoming the very thing the Confederacy was originally against. Central government above state rights, lack of individual freedoms of white workers and some landowners, and suspension of habeas corpus. For example, according to George Rabel, the heart of the message centered on what the governor, this is the governor of Georgia, considered the two most pressing issues facing Georgia and the Confederacy. In suspending habeas corpus on the pretext of necessity, Congress, this is the Confederate Congress, had struck a, a fell blow at the liberties of the people by establishing what amounted to a Confederate star chamber. Brown's rhetoric implied a necessity for resistance, resistance against the Confederacy. And he went no farther than urging the law's repeal. Shortly after the 1863 election, the governor, that is Joe Brown, raised the question of Georgia troops selecting their own officers. Brown cloaked his arguments in the garb of states' rights. And the governor's friend, Vice President Stevens, who we heard about earlier, had a fixation on the principle of hardened, uh, his principle hardened by intense opposition to administrative policy remaining in force. All of Stevens' biographers have noted how he made a fetish of liberty. Resistance was the only logical response to, uh, to ex uh, executive and congressional tyranny. Brown and Stevens claim to fear military despotism and dictatorship. And I will let you analyze the type of psychological, biological, that is, psychological warfare that targets our limbic system and our biology of slave revol revolutions and revolts and uprisings, especially in Haiti and closer to home with the uprising of Nat Turner, the Seminole Uprising, and of course the movements ignited and led by Harriet Tubman. Thank you.